0: Hello and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and with video here on YouTube. Okay, this week we're going to do something kind of cool, and I'm actually a little excited about it. Um, You know, uh, boy, there's so many so many points to make here, but I'm just, we're going to talk about Scientology. We're going to talk about something called the Ideal Org Strategy, which is basically Scientology's effort to uh, buy new buildings for all of the churches of Scientology around the world and renovate them, at both at great expense, and thereby show that Scientology is expanding and prosperous and successful. A lot of people have spent a lot of time both scientologists former scientologists uh and people who have never been involved in scientology discussing what could be the various motivations behind why this would be being done it's a massive effort it's international in scope a lot of money has been invested by the church of scientology in this project it's been going on since the early 2000s and uh recently just this last uh within the last 2 weeks uh, on the uh John P. Capitalist, who have featured on this podcast before, put up an article called Scientology Ideal Orgs as Destroyers of Wealth. And this is a this is a this is a multi-part series. Part one has been up on his uh blog, which is now renamed Reasoned Life. And this really shows how Scientology former Scientologists and people who have never been involved in Scientology can truly complement one another when it comes to analyzing and looking at what's going on in the world of Scientology. And that's one of the reasons why I've so enjoyed having uh, John P. and also Jeff Wassel on my podcast, because they've been able to give me perspectives and information that I never, as a former Scientologist and Sea Org member, I never would have even thought of or considered. And so, this week, uh, I am welcoming John P. back. Hi, John. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Howdy, Chris. I'm glad to be here.
0: Awesome. So, uh, so first off, why don't we just kind of uh, talk a bit about this uh, about this article? What prompted you to put this together? and what are the what are the basic points? And then we'll kind of dive into a lot of the details of this.
1: I think you know this is something that ever since I fell into the world of Scientology, criticism, and activism, um, seven or eight years ago now, um, I've wanted to, to work on or I've wanted to offer as perhaps my main area of expertise. And of course, given all of the years that I spend in investment management, uh, I wanted to bring that perspective to analyzing how Scientology operates. So I wanted it to be focused on the money. And of course, the Ideal Org program is a fascinating piece of the puzzle because it's certainly the biggest area of expenditures and it's the biggest strategic initiative going on in Scientology. And it has been for almost 20 years now if you count the flag building and now the ideal Org program. So I want to bring the kind of economic and strategic and financial analysis skills that I've spent all those years developing on wall street. I want to bring it to Scientology. So if you look back on all of the comments that I've written about Scientology, a huge chunk of them deal with this. So I'm starting a series on my blog. And by the way, just to be very clear, um, the the address is now www.reasoned.life. And so now you can have domains that have .life, just like .com and .net and all that these days. So it's kind of a cutesy little thing. Um, and we thought it was a good name. So, so all you gotta do is www.reasoned.life and you'll get there. Excellent. And I'll Um, post
0: links to that in the comments section on YouTube and SensiblySpeaking.com. Great.
1: Great, Thanks. And so basically, uh, so I've been fascinated by the Ideal Org program because it is just so contrary to the way that any normal business would be run, that it's just been a source of, you know, wonderment for so many years.
0: Now, that's an interesting thing to say, because... Of course, buildings, you know companies buy buildings. They expand, they they grow, they they uh, create district new district offices, reach out into new territories. Um How do you see what Scientology is doing as uh, you know as, as so different or wrong from what other businesses do in that sense?
1: Well, you know the thing that that most businesses do with real estate, and, and I want to be very clear that I am not going to talk about companies that are in the real estate business. So I'm not going to talk about shopping mall developers or apartment uh, companies or anything like that. I'm talking about other companies whose principal product is not real estate. Okay, so, yep. so any rational business outside of the real estate industry is going to be about using real estate to generate the maximum amount of returns that it can. So you want to have the cheapest amount of the, you want to pay the cheapest for the building that's going to support your mission most effectively. So if you are going to build a car plant, you want to get it out away from downtown Cleveland. You want to put it way out 60 miles out of town in a small town where land is cheap. You get a lot of tax breaks and it's easy to expand so that you keep the investment as low as possible because, it's only a small part of what it costs to to bring cars to market, then make make them and sell them, and so, and, and so, um, in fact, there's a truism in Silicon Valley, and I've named it the edifice complex, that <laughs> that when a, you know, real estate is very expensive, land, is, bare land is incredibly expensive in Silicon Valley, and it has been for twenty or thirty years. But when companies do really, really well, they start casting about for a big headquarters complex and they'll go shell out two or $300 million for some piece of, you know, 30 or 40 acres of blank land somewhere, or they'll buy something and they'll, they'll buy an old shopping mall and tear it down. But they'll throw out an enormous chunk of money and build this wonderful, amazing corporate headquarters. And if you look at what Google and Facebook are doing, they're trying to be these amazing cutting edge architectural, never been done before sorts of things. So... But the thing is that for most companies, the moment that they start thinking about a fabulous headquarters building, they start taking their attention off their core business, off of the aggressiveness that drove them to growth that that got them to where they are, and their stock price usually tanks. And there have actually been studies that people like me have done over the years that correlate this, that says that, you know, somebody announces a, a headquarters, and then 12 months later, the stock is worth half what it was. Because growth has slowed and profits have gone down, so so there's a healthy skepticism on my part anyway coming in. But when you look at this, when you look at Scientology, who's not accountable to shareholders, of course, uh, you find that their edifice complex is not only a huge distraction, but it's actually so badly done that it is probably the most clownish example of a real estate program gone amok of anything I've ever seen. And so uh, the first thing I did is I wrote a story about the strategy level and that's the article that we're talking about today. Um, In the next week or two, I'll take the next step and I'll talk about the numbers behind this. They do literally everything wrong that a commercial real estate operator would do in order to maximize their profits and the return on investment. But we'll get that in a separate post. What I wanted to do is think about um, and, and we'll talk about, you know, and you've been involved in, uh, some of the early aspects of the strategy. We'll talk about what started the ideal org. We'll talk about where it's been successful. We'll talk about where it is today and we'll talk about where it might go in the future and why it's never going to succeed. Every one that they open is going to be worse than the ones in the past. Right.
0: Good, good. Well, there are a number of, of things racing through my head right now to discuss on this, but I think uh, we'll focus first on the beginnings of this strategy because it it just so happens, and I have not really had a lot of opportunities to discuss this, I I think maybe once or twice, Um, my own personal involvement with the ideal org strategy, so to speak, actually goes back to before it was even called the ideal org strategy. It was based on Buffalo, New York. You you lay out in the article, and Mike Rinder has done a, a you know a wonderful job of laying out even earlier, which you based your research on, the evolution of this, how it started, and it started with uh, Buffalo, New York. Um, at least that's how that's how it's yeah you know, got on my plate. I was a manager person at the for the West U.S. at the continental level uh, of Scientology management, and I got called up to the international management headquarters, the upper middle management. Not I didn't go to the gold base where they, you know, out in San Jacinto where they have the barbed wire on the fences and stuff. I just went down the street to the Hollywood Guarantee Building, big 12-story edifice down there, and was taken into a room and was shown this very super, super confidential two-page issue, which was basically really, it wasn't even a formal issue, it was really just a printout with some bullet points on it. And those bullet points laid out a, a what was called a buffalo pattern. These things were done in buffalo, and we were looking at exporting this planning or this idea to all of the orgs. That's how it was presented to me. And the first thing that was going to be done is we were going to be sending C-Org missions to these various orgs starting in the bay area with the stevens creek san jose org which is where i was going to i was going to go to do surveys and talk to the public the ot public the high level public about recruitment for joining what what is it that prevents them from joining staff What is it that they would like to see in the orgs? What is it that they would like that that would get them more motivated and excited to become part of the activity? In other words, and and this was all under bullet point number one, which was rally the field, get the OTs involved in the survival and livelihood of their own local organizations, because uh, the phenomena that was, that was being looked at there was that these people would go up to the top of the bridge, meaning they would have to go to Flag in Clearwater. And once they did that, they kind of disavowed their local ORCs. They really didn't do much with them and weren't really very involved in them. And Miscavige was like, yeah, no, these guys need to be taking responsibility for their local field. So this will be just one more way of uh, this will be a new way of getting them to do that.
1: Yeah and and, so, and actually and actually it's interesting because that's a pretty decent strategic move. That's right? not bad strategic thinking, right? That's get right. your customers to have intangible skin in the game simply beyond coming back and spending money with you. Right? right? And so that's how, you know, casinos go with high roller stuff, personalized attention so you get the same butler every time that you come in to gamble. So that it feels like something more than a business where you transact giving away your money in return for, you know, entertainment. And and so, you know, we see this in many other businesses. For example, in the software industry, you put your biggest customers on customer advisory boards. You take them away uh, to fancy places for golf weekends where they tell you what they like and don't like about the products and what problems they're worried about solving. And so they get to hobnob with the head of Oracle or the head of Microsoft or the head of Google or whatever. You hobnob with top management and you feel like, you know, so it's a it's a huge perk. They give, but they give you skin in the game beyond, hey, I've already got a ton of this, I got to keep buying it. And so that's, not a bad strategic exactly, move.
0: That's exactly what Miscavige was doing.
1: Not a bad strategic move, but of course it's all in the implementation.
0: Well, exactly. And there is that little vicious undercurrent in Scientology that always exists of, you know, you will do what we say or else, uh, that sort of authoritarian bent that also, that always is kind of behind the scenes a little bit, you know. And with these OTs, the, the the sort of blackmail point with them was, if you don't pony up, if you don't start showing some initiative and some and some drive, to get your local organization going we can always deny you your next OT level we can always you know make you have to spend more money and spend more time proving to us that you are a good loyal scientologist and then we will hand out the next secret information that you need in order to move up the bridge to total freedom so so that was the, the those were some of the factors that were played against each other
1: Yeah, I can just see that as uh, something like Drew Carey on The Price is Right saying, and behind door number two, is that the new Jaguar, or is it a free trip to ethics with six intensives of sec checks?
0: You got it. That's exactly right. That is exactly how it was done. Uh, And, you know, and Miscavige also was trying to solve another problem, which is that um, the staff were barely keeping the doors open. I mean, that was pretty much what was going on with most of, and is still going on with with these orgs. So they didn't, you know, so if they were going to dump this whole new idea on the staff of now you guys are not only going to keep the doors open, I mean, they would run into the problem you just mentioned. While they weren't publicly traded companies, these churches are still staffed by a, most of the time, a handful of staff. And these are not people who are capable of going out and fundraising millions of dollars to go buy a new building. Otherwise, they they wouldn't have rent problems and lease problems and having to be bailed out as I've gone over in past episodes about how they weren't even making the rent and management had to come in and subsidize them. So this was the crew of resources Miscavige had in his hand to deal with. So he goes, well, these guys clearly aren't going to get the job done, so I'm going to have to rally the field and get these guys excited about this in order to get this fundraising idea kicked off and really going in earnest.
1: Yeah, and so so yeah, so he's got so so I think it's a it's a good strategy, but then let's look at the uh let's yeah, look at the implementation. Well then, but
0: then then the, the other points, let me just go over a couple other points on this to lay out how this went down was the idea is to not only rally the field and get them going, but also to beef up the number of staff, uh, get more auditors in there, get more supervisors, revitalize them, get them all excited about delivering the product of Scientology. And and then also one other very important key point of this strategy was to replace the top-level executives of all of these Scientology churches with, ot's mm-hmm. uh the idea being that the ot's were the powerhouses who were going to bring it but really in the real world if because miscavige doesn't believe in ot superpowers he knows that's not you know he knows that's bullshit but what these ot's do represent is a a um symbology of successful Scientologists, key you know, superpowers and all of that. And mm-hmm. so if he installs an OT or a board of OTs at the top of each one of these churches, then the idea is they can't help but succeed. And these OTs who make it to the top of the bridge tend to be the successful business people and richer, more affluent Scientologists. So they'll bring, you know, their business acumen or whatever skill set they have to the churches which these staff members who've been, you know, hobbling about for 20 years really only running the show according to the crappy directions they're receiving from management, from internalized Scientology management, and they're not, they're not getting anywhere. So I think Miscavige was really hoping to inject a, a whole new, you know, electric, you know, really blow these things wide open with, with this strategy.
1: Well, you know, in fact, what 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 it sounds like he's essentially doing with the OT committees, you know, kind of having some dotted line input into how their local org is run is this is the standard Hubbard approach of when something doesn't work, add another separate layer of management that comes in, right? So you have you had the Commodore staff, then you had the CMO, then you had the CLOs, then you had whatever the hell else, um, nine different levels of You know, people that could pop up at any time and tell you how to do your job and often be in conflict with each other. So now you've added another one called the OT committees. But uh, but I think that all of this is fundamentally premised on the notion that the staff is forever going to be nitwits that can't manage their way out of a paper bag. And to that point, Rinder raises another point as as a justification for the ideal org strategy and for having to have real estate be there is automating the recruiting process, right? And this is a huge strategic mistake. If I understand what I read in, you know, Margaret Singer's Cults in Our Mist or Robert J. Lifton's work or any of those sort of canonical reference works on how cults operate, Um, he's automating recruitment because the staff is such a bunch of nitwits that they can't be trusted to talk coherently about what Scientology can do for somebody. So they take somebody in, they plop them in front of a screen, they stay as long as they do. They wander out, nobody talks to them and says, "So what'd you think?" And nobody even follows up. And That's so right. you know That's this right. automated recruiting, which needed all sorts of expanded video facilities, was another pretext for having to completely redo all the orgs, which you know may have had the square footage, but certainly didn't have the the cool looking the, the cool looking layout. And in fact, one of the things That's we right. might want to do is to circle back later and talk about what is the commitment, To dissemination that the ideal orgs embody and how do we know we'll circle back and we'll talk about that a little bit yeah we can that's a whole podcast
0: in itself because i can tell you that so let's go ahead
1: yeah so let's let's continue looking at the first three orgs in some detail and how it spawned the strategy right buffalo johannesburg and tampa let's try and stitch that together and then we can go on and look at the strategy
0: yeah absolutely um just an underlying thing i just want to comment on while it's still on fresh on my mind is uh, one of the one of the things that uh, impedes this uh, whole ideal org strategy and, like like and what you just laid out there about sick somebody in front of a TV screen is just one way that this has shown itself or manifested is that David Miscavige personally hates people and he doesn't trust them. And so every you know, all of his strategies are sort of uh, hinged on getting rid of people, getting people out of the picture when. Scientology's entire model is based on people interacting with one another. Well, so, yeah, I
1: mean, that's that's how you recruit cult recruiting in the past, yes. although this is changing with YouTube and social media-based recruiting efforts for some of these new new age-type cults, um, is a very labor-intensive process. You know, I wrote a thing uh, the earlier this week or yesterday about Lyndon LaRouche uh, versus Hubbard in a couple of areas, which is kind of a fun little romp. But I was approached by LaRouche recruiters, and these guys worked me for, you know, two of these kids worked me through about his hydrogen fusion front group on campus one afternoon for about two hours until I finally realized there was something a little off and I, I walked away. But, you know, they spent four hours of their time rolling me, and God knows how many hours standing there with nobody to talk to. So cult recruiting has always been a very personal uh, endeavor, you know, Something like half of people are brought into cults through friends and family.
0: That's right. Or in Scientology, it's definitely even more than that.
1: Yeah. So automating it, of course, is a disaster. Total, but
0: total and complete. And that's one of the reasons why I have said that David Miscavige is not really very interested in bringing in new members because he does everything he does and orders sabotages that effort. So he's mm-hmm. either in, he's either Far stupider on that subject than I think he is, because I think he's actually a fairly smart guy. or, as I think, he just doesn't care. Anyway, either way, doesn't really matter. So let's okay, so good. So diving back into the uh, history of this and and how this evolved. Uh, while well, flag is the biggest organization of Scientology in the world and delivers the most services and that sort of thing it that whole the what happened with flag was kind of a microcosm of what Miscavige then ended up exporting to everywhere else they uh, bought a, 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 you know this this property they literally built from from nothing this tremendous edifice that now you know uh, has taken over the skyline of Clearwater Florida and they Fundraised millions and millions of dollars for it over over a course of something like 20 years Um,
1: Well, and it was
0: wildly successful as far as Scientology was concerned
1: Yeah, and I would say I would say you have to think of flag the flag building as a fundraising product fundraising project that had a real estate gig as a side effect
0: Yes, yes, I think that's exactly right um, the idea was that they were going to initially, at least this is how it was marketed to Scientologists. I can't speak to what David Miscavige was really doing behind the scenes, if there was anything else going on here. But what I can say is that uh, following the IRS tax exemption in 1993, um, that was, I believe, when first talk started about purchasing this this plot of land next to the Fort Harrison Hotel and building a, a property that would house this new series of steps or auditing actions that would be done called superpower and that was when the first whisperings of this started and i think it was uh, if we're going to relate this back to the IRS and spending money it seems almost almost date coincident that the that the talk about buying this property and building this edifice and And uh, investing money in that came right on the heels of Scientology getting their tax exemption.
1: That, and there's also a story, and I don't have a way to judge this. This is something that the uh, exes who were, you know, on scene at the time might have more perspective on. But there's also a story that this was in some way a reaction to the Lisa McPherson disaster, right, that Scientology needed to distract memberships from that and potentially, I'm, I'm not sure I'm getting the dates wrong, but the Wallersheim case, the Julie Christofferson case, some other legal, you know, devastating legal blows. Um, and so that there needed to be a positive focus to handle, to get people excited about being Scientologists again. And if you think strategically, they had the Fort Harrison Hotel, they had a bunch of crappy buildings where you could go and get auditing and, you know, etc. So they had all these crappy facilities, but it wasn't a destination resort. And you have the world's biggest destination resort about an hour down the road in the form of Disney World. And so you could learn from the concept that you had a hotel that was a nice place that people could go and they could stay and get audited in the ballrooms of the hotel, but it wasn't really a destination resort. And it was really just, you know, it was just this is a place where you go to get these services. But by adding exactly. this and flag it was the building,
0: only place you could go for those services.
1: Right. But it was still an artificial need to go to flag. But right. now, if you have this really cool building and it has what are all those stupid statues? Is that the tone scale or is that the different dynamics? The dynamics. They have, like, they right, have actually,
0: all of it. They're supposed to represent all the various basic fundamental concepts of Scientology. Right. But so they you have
1: all this horrible. They, you know,
0: they also renovated all the properties in Clearwater I'm I'm sitting here like kind of connecting all these dots now and I'm like wait a minute they they did a massive investor of of millions of dollars into all of the Clearwater properties the advanced organization got a whole overhaul they added two floors to it the the Fort Harrison got a full refurbish like every building even even the Sea Org uh birthing buildings, which were old hotels that had been purchased down the road from the Fort Harrison, even they got a full refurbish.
1: Yeah. And what's interesting, by the way, is I saw a number at one point that said they spent like, I think it was either 145 or $175,000 a room on the Fort Harrison for renovation. And I looked it up at the time and the standard cost to build a new hotel room of decent quality. We're not talking like crappy motel. We're talking You know, Marriott-type construction costs are like 110,000 a room, and so they they were paying an exorbitant amount on the renovation of of the Fort Harrison. But when you're but it all served
0: it all served the end of yes yes Mr. IRS inspector we are doing we are complying 100 percent with reinvesting the money that we're making into our church facilities to you know deal with all this expansion we're experiencing.
1: Yeah. So, so basically when you look at it as near as we can figure people have gone through before me, I haven't done it personally, but people have gone through and added up all the statuses given and the minimum status level, you know, the minimum dollars it takes to hit each of those status levels. And they believe that the, the Scientology raised over 200 million for this building, which as near as I can figure didn't cost more than a buck and a quarter. And so the, Fundraising total is likely higher than 200 million, so they probably walked away with 100 to 125 million dollars of pure profit And only reinvested half of what they took in in actual construction costs Oddly enough residential construction can be somewhat more expensive Especially higher-end residential is somewhat more expensive per square foot than prime office construction Outside the new york or like downtown chicago type of uh, areas so so I think that uh, they made a fabulous amount of money there. And I think that the combination of that, plus what they were trying to do in the, the Tampa org. So let's let's talk about, so let's just really yeah, quickly go, go over the Buffalo Tampa. thing. Right, so let's look at Buffalo, then let's look at Johannesburg, which isn't very complicated, and then let's look at Tampa, which was really a big step forward. And yeah. then you marry the dots that those three line, orgs connect with the dots that flag connect, and that leads you straight to the ideal org strategy.
0: Yeah. Cool. So, OK, so Miscavige has this thing going down in, in, in Clearwater with the with the flag buildings. And Miscavige was, by the way, when Lisa McPherson, just to just to kind of segue into Buffalo, I want to I want to set a little bit more scene for what was going on in the late 90s when this was all going down, because you had Miscavige personally at flag dealing with the Lisa McPherson situation and the fallout from that and all the legal fallout from that because it was the closest he's ever come to going to jail. Then you had all these renovations and stuff happening, and because Miscavige was personally in Clearwater, he was doing this big upgrade of the staff and the service lines, and making sure Flag was this glittering model of, of service efficiency. Uh, and we were hearing about all this in, in West U.S., out in L.A., and we were getting sort of crumbs of of this throw, you know, being thrown our way as to how the the big blue facility should be upgrading ourselves and taking responsibility for ourselves and this sort of thing. So that was all going down and then this thing happens in Buffalo and Buffalo, as uh, Miscavige himself explained it to us uh, after the fact, the, the Buffalo building was going to be torn down and, and eminent domain was being uh, implemented by the local government to enforce that because they had something that they were, some highway or railway or something they were going to build. And Buffalo had to move. They had no choice in the matter. And, uh, and so what Miscavige said they did, and I don't have any other facts on this than what he said, uh, was that they negotiated with the city or with the county or state or whoever it was who was implementing this uh, and ended up unloading their property but getting like two times as much money back from them to purchase this new building that they were going to do and so they decided well if we're going to do this let's go all in and they bought this very nice building a historical building if i understand it right and they then proceeded to renovate it at some pretty big expense and then they said well we can't just have a nice building with the five Buffalo staff who've been toddling along for all these years doing nothing. So we have to inject all of this life into Buffalo, which is where that bullet point list I mentioned earlier comes from of Miscavige saying, okay, well, if we're going to do this, get the OTs on board, revitalize the staff. Let's get this field going around this in a really big way. And let's make this a very special thing and really revitalize Buffalo as as a Scientology activity.
1: And one of the most amusing points of this is you see the thread running through this as you do through so much of Scientology management decision making is the assumption here is that the lack of sales of the product in Buffalo are due to the staff. Yes. That there's Every always time. an implicit assumption in Scientology, yes. right? You read any of Hubbard's drivel, any of these policies, there's always an implicit assumption that demand for Scientology is infinite if only the staff weren't such fuck ups.
0: Yes. He actually wrote a policy letter that says pretty much exactly what you just said. He doesn't say fuck-ups, but that is what he says. The demand for Scientology is infinite, and you should always assume that that is the case.
1: Yeah, and and it's ludicrous. Any real business knows that, you know, you look at IBM. IBM years ago thought that demand for big-ass, water-cooled, mainframe computers was infinite, and it wasn't. Right. And, you know, that's a tiny sliver of IBM's business today, like 2% of IBM's business. And it was the most profitable business of the world in the 1960s and 1970s. And demand changes. And exactly. Scientology demand has certainly changed. Nobody wants a product that is as toxic as an armload, as I'm known to say, an armload of Ebola-coated kitty porn.
0: Yes. I right? love that line.
1: And it's, and it's true. It's worth repeating because... You know, everybody has heard of Scientology through either Leia's show, a Google search, Larry Wright's book, and on and on and on and on and on. Anybody that's heard of Scientology or that looks it up on their phone knows one thing, run away. There are that's bigger right. cults out there in the U.S., and there are certainly bigger cults in the world, and there are many cults that actually have more money than Scientology. But there is none that has as toxic brand name. That's so right. I digress. I digress. No, but anyway, but,
0: but, but you're absolutely, but you're on point there because that is one of the reasons failure to address that underlies this entire thing. Like this whole thing assumes that everybody is well. And again, we've talked before. I've said, you know, they Scientologists really truly believe everyone's a Scientologist. They just don't know it yet. And and yeah, so and, there's a the demand. That is
1: a that is a that is a frequent arrogance of religions. Muslims and some Christians say the exact same thing in almost the exact same world word that everybody is in humanity is inherently a believer in X and they just got lost along the way. That's why we have to bring them back.
0: That's right. That's exactly right. And um, they uh, so that so and also the other assumption and this is not this was this was not stated by Miscavige at any time but I certainly said it when we were in Scientology and I had every single Scientologist I ever said it to heartily agree with me is the, is it's a field of dream strategy. If you build it, they will come.
1: Absolutely. Now that's absolutely true. So, so, okay. So we saw the first glimmerings of that with Buffalo, right? Where they yes. had an extra, they, they scored some money. They decided to spend up on a building. And the key thing, the key takeaway from that piece is that when they saw the nifty building, they then realized, oh, shit, we've got to upgrade all of these morons, you know, that are sitting behind desks and accomplishing nothing. So that organizational up, you know, the, the physical upgrade also has to be accompanied by a massive organizational upgrade. And I don't know That's how right. many Sea Org they sent in to run Buffalo, but I'm sure it was quite laughable. That well, I actually
0: you... knew the staff, I knew the Sea Org members they sent in there, and they had to send a few teams in because they'd send team number one in, and they wouldn't succeed, and they bombed, and then they sent another team in, and then they bombed, and then they sent well, another team in. You,
1: yeah, and you think about it, right, and Buffalo in particular is susceptible to this, right, that you go and you you get on staff in Buffalo, and you discover that you hate life, what do you do? you escape, and of course, Buffalo is the gateway to the small, quaint, rural Canada region of upstate New York that lies somewhere to the north, and so it's very easy for Sea Org members to get lost in the wilds of Canada, to, you know, in the, the windswept prairies of Mississauga, you know, that that, you know, that they, they might even move to the village of Toronto, which is the capital of the Canada region, and, and still, but they can hide out in Canada in the trackless wastes. So, so Buffalo, I'm sure, was a tempting sort of um, jumping-off point for a lot of people to blow Scientology.
0: Well, I know more than a couple Scientologists and Sea Org members who got sent to Buffalo and never came back. And this was, and it's it's so funny in hindsight. Of course, at the time I didn't see this, but looking back on it, every single thing, every flaw of this strategy, was actually pretty evident in Buffalo. Uh, from from the you know fact of you know, if you build it, they will come, doesn't work. They open the doors with great fanfare. The mayor of Buffalo literally stood outside the doors and spoke about how wonderful Scientology is, and even used Scientology lingo in his speech. And yet the next day, it's a ghost town. Mm-hmm. And I know from the my friends who were sent there, who then came back and told me, all about, you know, the hellhole that it was like, uh, that nobody was coming in. No one gave a shit about the fact that they opened up a new building downtown and now, slow. look at Scientology. They're so impressive. No, nobody cared, and nobody walked in there, and nobody was curious. They just went, oh, now it's a bigger building, and there's great big windows, and they could see inside, and they could see nothing was going on, and it didn't draw any new attention or anything, And so, you know, of course, the, you know, they rolled through various evolutions of staff because it was always the staff member's fault. It wasn't Miscavige's fault. It wasn't the strategy's fault and it wasn't the building's fault. So it had to be the staff.
1: Right. And that, of course, harkens back to our earlier comments about the data series, which is that in the data series, you can stack the deck so that it's never management's fault. It's never the product's fault and it's never... The organization's fault. It's always the lower, the poor Schmendricks in the lower ranks that end up getting beat on. For That's sure right. Enough. Which but, is
0: the number one flaw with the data series because it it curtails critical thinking. It doesn't enhance yeah.
1: it. Yep. So then we move on to Johannesburg. And yep. so what, as I understand, what happened there is that somebody on staff got murdered in front of the building because it was in a crappy neighborhood. I think there's an awareness that you know that it's not the case that well. Gosh, you know we don't feel good about ourselves because we don't have these posh headquarters. But no, all of a sudden there's an awareness that, you know, we've let the real estate situation get sloppy, and it, um, you know, that the real estate that, you know, we're we're in the you know we're in the wrong part of town, and it's like, yes, now that the word is out that somebody got murdered, you know, we're going to have trouble keeping staff. Who's going to want to work here if they might be next? Now that's right. You know, murder is you know, common in certain areas of Johannesburg, unfortunately. And, you know, statistically, you don't know that you're going to be next, but but obviously it's going to keep customers away. So so you get well, a situation. Well, the Sea Org
0: members couldn't even go outside at night. That was the rule.
1: Yeah. In, in South and,
0: Africa. I mean, you just don't. And
1: so, and so you can't work 20-hour days because those people are going to work in the dark. They're coming home in the dark. So you can't work 20-hour days if they're not allowed out in the dark. So, exactly. So obviously you got to fix that so they did um yes and and, they bought
0: this property which was out away from the main city and obviously they did that on purpose and i can't pretend to understand everything about south africa and and johannesburg geography and and political situation but um but yeah i know that that safety was a concern
1: yeah and you have you know you do have the situation where you know today in south africa as it was twenty years ago when this happened you do have a situation where essentially the rich whites are segregating themselves into, you know, access controlled neighborhoods and with heavy armed security presence. And so, yeah, there was there is clearly an incentive in South Africa that you had to that you had to join that. So so yeah. that set a precedent for locating the building out of the dangerous urban center um you know, and, and I'm sure it all sort of was the vision of, uh, you know, TGAC as the prison planet, you know, the downtown Cincinnati or downtown Johannesburg or downtown Kansas city or whatever, you've got to get out to the burbs and and be safe. So, right. So anyway, so that was another point,
0: which by the way, is completely and 100% contrary to Hubbard's policies on where an org should be located.
1: Well, absolutely. You know, foot traffic is free. Yep. And foot traffic is worth paying for corner locations on an Avenue in Manhattan. So like fifth Avenue in Midtown rents for, I haven't looked lately, but five, six, seven hundred $700 per square foot per year to rent a prime store location on Manhattan because the staggering amount of tourist foot traffic you get will blow your mind. And so, you know, the, the Trader Joe's on uh, Union Square in Manhattan, they're paying for a Trader Joe's for a supermarket. They're paying $750 per square foot for a 10,000 foot box. So they're paying, you know, what is that? If I'm doing it right, that's $8 million a year in rent. But they're blowing 20 times the revenue per square foot of any grocery store in the country out of that location. It's worth it because of the foot traffic. Right, And right. And so Hubbard was absolutely right in that foot traffic is the best free thing you can get. And you can have your body router standing out in front of the org. And even if there's a 0.01% success rate, you're going to nail a couple of bodies every day or two because there's just that much foot traffic. So, but yeah. I can understand, you know, the unique situation of Johannesburg um, and the impact that it had on that organization. I can understand people you know, making sort of a defensive decision. Sometimes the defensive decisions you make are usually not your best ones. Uh, making this defensive decision to get out of the dodge and, you know, seeing that that eventually spreads uh, mistakenly throughout the organization. But but Hubbard was absolutely right about foot traffic and he was absolutely right about cheap enough but not horrific buildings being an appropriate thing. But so, yes. so here are two things that are taking the strategy in a very different direction, but the real capper is Tampa Bay.
0: Yes, let's talk about that. So Tampa is the is the Class Five org or the city level org that is right next to Clearwater, right next to Flag. And Flag is uh, the one and only Class Twelve org in the world. If you're going to put these in a hierarchy as to how they, as to how you know the number of uh, services they deliver, and a lot of people for many many years wondered why does Tampa even exist? Because there's flag right there. And and it, flag had gotten this massive facelift in the late nineties had gotten this, you know, investor of millions of dollars and COB's personal attention for years, uh, to upgrade the service lines and make them speedy and fast. You have Sea Org members dedicated 24 seven to, uh, you know, they upgraded the hotels. They had concierge service. Now they had, you know, they had the equivalent of, uh, four or five star restaurants installed at the Fort Harrison. I mean this tremendous thing happened at Flag while Tampa is sitting there in this shit ass little building with a few staff and its real only purpose was to deal with Flag's rejects, the people that Flag couldn't service.
1: Right. And so so you have a and so you know imagine Think, think of the level of screw-up that that represents. You have a national customer base for the Tampa org that somebody comes to flag and their wife, for whatever reason, is not flag certified or whatever the term is, and they have to go do auditing with some class four auditor in Tampa while, you know, hubby is getting the the, the treatment. That's and right. the dichotomy of having to go to a crap organization in some strip mall in Tampa and be audited at some cheap you know, wobbly folding table purchased at the local Staples, while Hubby is in the, quote, mecca of technical perfection with all sorts of smooth, indirect lighting, air conditioning that works, and all sorts of other wonderful benefits, and you're going to, you know, gobble down, you know, stale croissant sandwiches at the local Jack in the Box while he's eating at the whatever in the Fort Harrison, the dichotomy is unacceptable, right? So if That's you're right. gonna have Flagby a Destination Resort, even the cast offs have to get catered to so you can take their money. So exactly. so they so they so the brilliant innovation here was exactly what we talked about a few minutes ago, which is making the OT field responsible for this because it was hopeless. If the staff in Tampa couldn't get it done with a national customer base, the only one in the system, then it says something pretty awful about Scientology. So you have to give the customers the skin in the game, and that's where the idea that the customers were going to, uh, the customers were going to raise the money, and that it was going to be a historic building, kind of like what they did with Buffalo, and they were going to doll it up, so that the customer, so that the OTs would have skin in the game to disseminate right? Because, right. you know, one of the things about Scientology is people are embarrassed at this point, and And certainly even in 2003, when this was getting started, people were embarrassed to own up to being a Scientologist. Yes. I've talked to many an ex-member who not only didn't raise their kids as Scientologists, but never told coworkers, they never tried to bring people in. And so if you push the responsibility onto the OT, and, and by the way, Remember, competitors to Scientology, such as Est, now Landmark Education, were very good at getting people to sign up their friends, right? That was a big part of doing all of the the courses is there was always an undercurrent of you got to bring your friends. And they would put the heat up, not, you know, severe reality adjustment on a miscavige level, but there was a constant undertone of heat to get people to bring their friends and and the members to be a sales force. And it yes. worked. If you look at how many people go through Landmark every year, it's not that much money because they don't do donations. It's all strictly like a corporate training program, but they get like 100,000 people a year going through some version of their courses. That's not bad.
0: That's right. And to think that Miscavige isn't paying attention to that or doesn't look into that sort of thing would be foolish. He spends a lot – he he spends time – Looking at what are other groups doing that's successful that we should be doing, it's it, it's such a it's such a, and that, and this is back then. I'm not talking about now. I think he's given up on it at this point. But he was spending uh, some time in the '90s and early 2000s trying to, you know, trying to figure out what are we not doing that we should be doing yeah. that would, you know,
1: yeah. And so strategically, this is a good idea. The problem is, as Miscavige does it. Right, there's a small number of OTs trying to raise however much they spent on Tampa. I, at one point, I, rec- I would recall what that was, but I've forgotten it now. But you know, you figure six, eight, ten, twelve million dollars out of an OT committee of 30 to 50 people raising money from the clear, even from the Clearwater field. It took a while, but but basically, by the time the third one of these orgs in the series, Tampa is along. The basics of the ideal org program are set. But yep. I think that he finally, when that when that last piece fell into place. Miscavige did a nice piece of what we call bottom-up strategy. And bottom-up strategy is a really important thing in business because if you get too fixated on your brilliant one strategic idea that you then go and then you do, you break down into little chunks and then you implement each other chunks as part of this grand strategy, a top-down strategy can often be a great thing. But if you look at Google, Google did not have a top-down strategy for world domination of search Cartography, email, browser technology, and mobile devices. They hadn't thought of any of that except for the search part. But they hadn't even really figured out how to make money with search. All of their strategy came bottom up. So, Gmail came, they invented, so so some guy came up with a really cool programming hack in a browser to make browser applications look cool. And somebody, and then they said, well, can we build with it? And the guy said, I don't know. Maybe we should build a, just a simple email program to challenge Hotmail. And they go, okay, do that. And then they figured out what they could use that for as an element of the world domination strategy. So they didn't start by selling investors. I, I didn't invest in Google. I was not on the West Coast, and it was a very, very narrow deal. So they there was so much, so many people trying to get into Google. But I know world domination was not the pitch. It was, we can invent this search thing and we can sell ads and it'll be great because of this. And it was a great deal on the basis of search. But Google fell into the rest of the world domination scheme. And so bottom up strategy can often work really well. My favorite example is Taco Bell. So Taco Bell had a problem competing with Happy Meals where you get a Coke. Happy Meal was a great deal for McDonald's. You convince parents to buy a Coke and a fries in a, which are very profitable items on top of a burger because you sell it at the same price and you throw in a free toy. Unfortunately, Taco Bell could never come up with a toy that anybody wanted. So they finally just decided to suck it up and put out 12 packs at a discount. And the idea was that a family with, family with three kids would come in, they would buy a 12 pack of tacos, they would buy a couple of premium items for mom and dad, they'd buy two large drinks and three Cokes. And they would do that between 5.30 and 7.00 and it would get kids in the store. Just suck it up, give a discount, don't try to compete on McDonald's turf. So they did that. Then they discovered that that buyer that they targeted was only a small part of the sales. Most of the sales were people after 11.30 at night buying three of these boxes, 11 premium items, six large drinks. Now, so they who finally fi-
0: could it be who would be coming in at 11 o'clock at night for tacos? I wonder...
1: It took them a while to actually figure out what somebody suspected. And you're exactly right. It's stoners. And what they figured out was that the stoner market segment was actually a viable and identifiable customer base. And they then said, we're going to strategically target the stoner market because there is such a thing. And nobody had seen that before. So they went out and they put out, this was about 10 years ago, they put out an advertising campaign called Fourth Meal which was just slightly twigged towards if you knew what it was about you knew what was going on they were well, not well, very- I, when
0: i moved here to colorado i had not been part of this market or demographic at all and once i became part of it i started seeing the marketing for it all over denver you know and and taco bell absolutely is all over that here
1: and, and the, the, the payoff for Taco Bell of this bottom up strategy of stumbling on a customer and then turning it into a strategy of like, of, 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 they grew business about 8% in a year or two in the fast food market. That is a staggering home run. Yep. And yep. it worked out really well for them. And a couple of the other, um, less popular, you know, you didn't see McDonald's and Burger King do this. Um, yep. and burgers are not that popular with stoners, but you saw Jack in the box, actually get Cheech and Chong to do a YouTube commercial. So, so they really went there. But the point is that the point is that a bottom up strategy can be very successful. And that's what the ideal org strategy fundamentally is. These three orgs came along and you had at the same time, the enormous financial success of all the excess donations from flag coming in. And all of a sudden these come together, the light goes on and you say, aha, our strategy to go out, bind our customers to us by getting all these OT committees and all these OTs that are committed. They have some skin in the game to driving expansion because our staff is a bunch of fuck ups. And we have this fundraising opportunity and we keep Tom Cruise happy because he reputedly said, I don't want to bring my friends to these loser buildings that you have and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It looks like a magic, you know, it looks like a magic box. So that's that's
0: exactly right. And I think and I'm really glad you brought this bottom up strategy thing uh, up because uh, I, for example, had not thought about it. And I know most exes uh, hadn't that that such a thing could evolve rather than originate from the top and be pushed down, because that's how we think of Scientology is it's all a brainchild of Hubbard or a brainchild of Miscavige. But this strategy really was. A bit of a of a Google thing. It really was an accident of circumstance and opportunity and potential that was all sort of, you know, built up by Miscavige, uh, yeah. in putting this whole thing together.
1: Yeah, and so and so you basically, you know, to his credit, he understood that he, you know, he he backed into the strategy, but he he understood what it could have meant to him. So then all of a sudden. Now that the flag thing is on its way, now this is an opportunity because you have one flag building and one flag only. You can't have, like Disneyland Hong Kong, you can't have multiple, you know, you you can only have one flag building that's the mecca. That's
0: right. So you
1: can't have, like, continental meccas. You have to have one flag building to get people from all over the world. So here's an opportunity to replicate it in miniature. Sounds good. Turns out, it's the second best strategy compared to flag here's how we look at it so I think the ideal org strategy has fit into has gone in two phases the first phase is done and that's not a good thing that it's done but the first phase just looked like mini flags they go out and they get these historic buildings whether you're talking Tel Aviv whether you're talking the uh, the one that they they tried to get in Boston that they're screwing up and that they're now selling in favor of the crappy one that they which is not the phase one. It's the, that's, this is Ideal Org 2.0. Um, but they got all these historic properties. They raised money successfully and they were able to do the renovations. And it all looked pretty good because you have two fundraisers, right? Get the initial building yep. and then you make people feel guilty. You have a sunk cost bias to dig deeper and then give money on a shitload of renovations. Yeah. And, and of course you're siphoning off all of the excess donations. So you you raise 10 million for a $4 million building, you raise 10 million for 5 million in renovations, you walk off with, you spend 10 million, which gets the IRS somewhat happy, and you then have this extra profit and you just keep doing this. The problem is that over time, when you have an organization that's not growing, you get donor fatigue setting in. A smaller number of bodies covering an expanding program
0: that's right. And we were seeing that in comments and and lack of money coming in by the end of, you know, 2010. We were already seeing that fatigue yeah. setting in.
1: And and so you certainly saw fatigue in certain communities that were pretty pathetic. Right. So yes. you saw this you saw this in uh, was it St. Louis or Kansas City, Albuquerque, Battle yep. Creek, you know, Battle Creek. Why the hell is there an Oregon Battle Creek? The metro area has a population of like 150,000. How many yes. Scientologists are there in Battle Creek? Eight, 10? So you have these, you know, stillborn attempts and, you know, in places like Dublin, you know, New Haven, you know, et cetera. Um, you know, Toronto, the small village that's the capital of Canada. You know, you have all of these other sorts of, you know, tiny little places where nothing happens, but you have some mainstream successes, right? The, the, Um, but then it starts to hit the wall and the proof point for this thing running out of gas is the Valley org. It took them 10 years to buy the building in the largest concentration of Scientologists in the world. And that's That's with Nancy Cartwright kicking in matching funds in a couple of campaigns. I don't know how much she gave as a percentage of the total,
0: but at least 5 million, if not 10, she gave a ton of money
1: yeah, I'm sure she gave a couple million bucks. I don't know whether it was half, whether she was matching for all of it, but there were matching campaigns where she signed up to match whatever came in. And these are, you know, these are all sort of prime rank and file demographics. All the dentists and chiropractors that are, you know, sort of mid to upper level whale donors are in the valley and they couldn't get it done in 10 years. Right. And then it isn't clear how much of the money for renovations they actually raised, it wouldn't surprise me, and I'm speaking as an educated guess here, not based on actual numbers, it wouldn't surprise me if McScabbage ended up having to pony up um, most of the money for renovations because it was so stalled. It was becoming an immense embarrassment. Now, we'd already seen them in a couple of other orgs. In particular, we know we've got documentation from the New Zealand government on Auckland. The Church International, and I don't recall exactly which entity, but International Management, loaned the Auckland org 10 million New Zealand dollars, um, to buy the building. And that's actually a tax issue for them because they're a chair They're I don't think they're tax exempt, but, but there's a note from the government that says, you got to show that you can pay this back. And of course their revenue is not enough to cover the debt service, much less the operating expenses. Um, I think there's about 150 Scientologists in New Zealand, maybe 200 tops. and not enough to support a 10 million dollar building um so we've already seen this thing flame out in a few places and it really hit the skids with the valley so that leads us to the the ideal org 2.0 strategy which we're seeing in orlando and which we now just saw in the last week or so when they announced they were buying this building in albuquerque they're buying stuff on the cheap the Orlando building costs $35 a square foot. That's a fraction of the cost of replacement construction. And it's in an industrial park, zero um, drive-by traffic, all destination traffic. In other words, the only time people going down that street is they're going to a specific business. Right. No foot traffic, none. And it's a crappy neighborhood in Orlando, away from the parks, away from the school, away from anything else. Wow. So, so you have... A building that, and there's no attempt at fundraising for this. And you would think that the Tampa Clearwater org crowd, they would be able to find a way to get Travolta or the um, um, Feshbacks, the ones that aren't bankrupt anyway, um, or somebody to kick in to find a million and a half bucks to buy this crappy building. They couldn't do it. So they quietly soft pedaled the fact that there was no fundraising campaign. And you'll notice it's now all about, hey, we're we'll keep doing this, right? So now Miscavige, so this is telling us something important. The fact that they're doing these ideal orgs and that they're doing them on the cheap. Right. The floor the the the, the per foot cost in Albuquerque is 40 bucks a foot, right in line with what's in um, what was in Orlando. And they're probably going to be doing the renovations on the cheap. Um, The fact is that this is clearly an indicator that this is all about maintaining Miscavige's legitimacy to lead the organization. And that's that's because he
0: cannot be seen to fail on this. And we will in future podcasts that we have planned right now, we're going to talk about some other epic fails of his um, because he's not this like, you know, brilliant mastermind. He is uh, definitely using some opportunities and potentials to his advantage with this.
1: Yeah, you're right. You know, we, but we do have to be intellectually honest. We have to say when Miscavige does make a correct decision Yes. and you know, some of these decisions we talked about are correct. They're not brilliant, but they're competent. Mm-hmm. Other discre- other areas, uh, are not so competent and, you know, and in some cases it's because of his own ineptitude. And in some cases, because he's got to play a crappy hand. So right now, he's got to play a crappy hand because he's got to maintain his own legitimacy. He's got to be seen to be answering the issue of Debbie Cook's email and pressure that's already been coming from members prior to that, which is how come we can't recruit new bodies? So he's got to have a why. The why is we have shitty buildings, and so if you fix them, they will come. Now, as this plays out, he'll find some other thing that will be the new why that nobody comes in. Yes. And so this will continue to fade, but for right now, he's committed to making all of the orgs ideal. So he's now flipped over and he's starting to do this on the cheap and he's starting to do this regardless of whether the individual ideal org projects are profit making opportunities to win donations. So he's hoping that other things will come along. So he's, he's essentially buying time here. Um, and he is buying off the IRS. Um, It's easy to figure out. The IRS knows exactly how much money Scientology has. In the wake of 9-11, this legislation was passed called the Patriot Act. And with the Patriot Act and 15 years of really slow but determined diplomacy, bank secrecy in the world has been sharply reduced. So the thing is that even if the U.S. government were to go after Scientology, it would be unable to seize Scientology's assets, but it already knows exactly where they are.
0: Right. So the so you're saying that the days of the secret Swiss bank accounts and, and, and being able to siphon money off and store it somewhere where nobody knows where it is and can't access the, the records on it, those days are pretty much over at this point? Yeah.
1: Greatly reduced, if not completely dead. So the okay. thing is that if the IRS were to go after Miscavige and talk about excess accumulation of capital as a means of taking away the tax exemption, which is the foundation of his legitimacy, right? I won the war against the IRS. Yes. If that, if the thing is, he wouldn't be able to come up with phony bank statements and say, well, we only have the 36 million in the Caymans. The IRS would be able to say, yeah, well, there's also this account, this account, this account, this account, this account. And as of yesterday, those accounts contained 1.6 billion.
0: Right. So in other words,
1: it's very easy these days for the IRS to prove him a liar if he understates his assets. So he has to actually spend the money. So so that's what the strategy is going to continue to, you know, is going to continue to drive. It's all about his legitimacy and he's going to try to stay ahead of the IRS. And Which is again, one reason
0: why the Scientology media productions happened, if not the reason. I well, mean, that I was think, that's again, not an that's, ideal org thing, but it was a huge Investor of money in the KTLA studios in the middle of Los Angeles that were completely unnecessary because they're just doing double duty for what they had already invested and created out in San Jacinto.
1: Yeah, and and I think you know I think one of the things there's a whole there's a whole series we can do on that. I think there were a whole bunch of reasons that led to the creation of SMP, but I think again it was uh, to essentially try to distract from the problem with the last surefire recruiting strategy of the ideal orgs right now we've got 34 however many ideal orgs done nobody else nobody knew is coming in and now there's and now that the whales are starting to get restless again and saying well it's still not happening and so then you say okay we'll have a centralized media facility that will will now go ahead and broadcast now of course we know what happened which is exactly what's happening a month or two of joke fodder for every late night talk show host in the world, followed by complete oblivion.
0: That's right.
1: And we knew that was going to happen, and that's exactly how it's gone. But they circulated the story about how, you know, one of the one of the most ludicrous statements ever is, like 15 minutes after they started broadcasting at 8 o'clock at night Eastern on whatever day this was, the local org somewhere was so full that the fire marshal came swooping in and said, you have to turn people away. So, which is just ludicrous beyond belief. The idea that somebody is going to sit there and say, I'm not doing anything. After watching this for three minutes, I'm going to leap in the car and drive (laughs) to the Scientology (laughs) org in Tampa and clamor to sign up for classes. Right. Uh-huh. That's exactly how it Yeah, works.
0: that sounds plausible.
1: But sure. but 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 again it's the you know, the stories that they can make up. They now have a story of it's like this is Charlie Brown in the football, right? Every year Lucy says, I'm not gonna take the ball away. And every year Charlie Brown goes, You lied the last however many years and she goes, No, no, I really mean it this time and then of course she still manages to jerk the ball away and Charlie Brown ends up flat on his back again. And so, you know, it's it's a very Charlie Brown slash Wiley E. Coyote, you know, these doomed schemes at work. Yep. But, uh, but basically, you know, I think the, to, to sort of start to, to move towards winding this up is, you know, the ideal org strategy is harder inherently to, right? Over time, and this is why growth slows in companies, there's a saying on Wall Street, trees don't grow to the sky. Eventually, gravity catches up to you. Eventually, the complexity of growing a business 10% a year becomes too hard and you just can't do it anymore. And so, um, so the, basically, the ideal org game only works when, they, when the underlying business is in growth mode. If you take the ideal org game to be a fundraising campaign, it only works when the organization is in growth mode. And Scientology is a long ways from being in growth mode. It's like the coal business. It's in managed decline. To be right. charitable, right. and and so this is a, this is why we've seen the strategy adjusted and flipped over to buildings on the cheap, screw the fundraising. We just have to keep doing these things to keep Miscavige on the throne. And so, oops. The yeah. the thing is that the other problem is that the carrot of the ideal org doesn't work forever. Flag, you can you can build flag, and then you can gin it up. A Potemkin village style, so that Flag is always busy by cannibalizing services from the outer org, you know, yeah. and saying now you know the the uh, the Dallas org can't deliver blah 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 service. You have to come to Flag, so you can keep pulling more and more business away from the outer orgs. But when you try to build the outer org business with a product that no new customers want, and you've restricted the old customers from buying certain products at the org the impedance mismatch between all of the expense on these orgs all of the promise about how this is going to be about dissemination and bringing people in and if you build it they will come and the reality of people are only coming to the orgs for a smaller and smaller range of services and they walk in and it's deader than ever before it doesn't work after a while the promise that that, 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 the 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 ultimate hook that the ot9 and 10 levels would be released when everybody goes ideal and their new St. Hill size, now all of a sudden people are starting to go, eh, this is not looking like we're making forward progress here. That's right. And, and that's, that's a big right. hook. Your spiritual progress is dependent on you making this strategy work and people are starting to realize it's the fourth quarter, we're down 49 to three, they've got the ball on our five yard line and it's two minutes left. People, I think, intuitively know, even if they're good at thought stopping and denying it, and I think that, you know, the disaffection that happens when people realize the ideal org strategy isn't working at their local org or at any other orgs they visit is going to be a problem. I think that, you know, oh, I
0: think it's I, I think that what you're talking about has is well on its way because I was noticing and noting um, on my channel three years ago that uh, it was very apparent to me that the that the concentration of effort in terms of money and service was in the C org level organizations that, that, that other than getting these buildings going and happening, very, very little attention is paid to these outer class five orgs, these city level orgs. They don't get management attention. They don't get management care. The staff are left to flounder around for the most part. And that's not, Good business, but it's 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 uh it's it's Miscavige looking at well where do we get the most bang for our buck on an immediate basis, which of course also goes back to the whole you know neurotic week to week stat thing, and also uh, where you know we've only got so many resources, there's only so many human assets in the world of Scientology to utilize, so where do you concentrate their attention, and they've been concentrating it at the Sea Org Org level. It's
1: at the the C-Org level and it's at the flag customer, flag level and a flag customer level. That's right. And
0: they've been actively pulling those flag public out of the class five or city level Mm -hmm. orgs and encouraging them go to flag, go to flag, go to flag, which is, you know, wholly counterintuitive to building these city level orgs. But that's what they're doing.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, it's
0: just observable.
1: Yeah, and and it's going to work out that eventually Flag is going to be like the ship. I've talked to several people who made OT7 and they said we're not going to go to OT8 because we'd have to go to the ship and they're not going to let us off the ship because they know right. how much money we have. That's they're not right. going to let us off until they get a major pound of flesh out of us. And we're done at that point. That's and right. I think that's going to increasingly happen with all of these, you know, you've got to come to Flag for everything and oh gosh, you schedule a week and then we discover that there's some screw up on auditing and you've got to be reprocessed or whatever it is. And Oh gosh, it turned into four weeks at primo hotel rates and sorry, we didn't know. Nope. That's so, right. Because they're, they eventually,
0: because they because the out of towners become captive audiences on the ship. You literally have no choice. They've literally taken your damn passport, but they'll do that same. Like you just said, they'll do the same thing at flag and that's going to so bomb they'll on they'll them.
1: Continue exactly and so you know what you but I think one of the things I'm not sure whether this is the point to talk about it or whether it's another whole discussion which is to say in some ways the ideal org strategy as it's implemented is absolutely about not recruiting any more people to Scientology putting these things way out of town having automated recruitment which flies in the face of the typical model that's been successful for cult recruitment and all of the rest of it.
0: Yeah. All I, of that. Well, all you're doing. Like, yeah. All you're doing right now is reinforcing what I've been saying. You know, the Miscavige just, that's just not what he's interested in.
1: No, what, and, he's interested and it shows. In, and what he's interested in is maximizing his control and power over his few remaining members. And he wants to get every dollar that he can. The situation is fundamentally that, um, there are still enough whales that are donating. He doesn't, you know, he, uh, uh, Jeff Augustine penned a thing years ago called Monastery Scientology. And I think it's coming true. and I um, it was basically the idea. And he wrote this in two thousand and eight and said, they are going to retreat. So they're already largely retreated from St Hill. There's a lot of stuff now that used to go at St. Hill that you have to come to flag for. There's a lot of stuff. Yep. You know, there's just not much going on at St. Hill. So they're already retreating from there. And they're, you know, they've got L.A. and they've got Clearwater. And that's what Jeff predicted was you're going to have L.A. and Clearwater and you're going to have a small number of wealthy members and he's going to fleece them for every dime they have. And as long as he has, I think it's more important for him to have the staff to abuse. I think that gives him a lot more emotional satisfaction than the members. So as long as he has a viable operation in L.A. and Clearwater, he doesn't fundamentally care how many staff are on the are in the mission in Guadalajara.
0: That's right. And all of that is only something he gives lip service to at events. Um, and something that is a, a rationalization or a justification for him to be able to further abuse the staff that are directly in his line of sight. Exactly.
1: And so, and so that is, that is the sense of, that's the emotional payload for him. Yep. You know, that the, the emotional payload, I think while he, he sees extracting money from members as an expression of power over the members, not necessarily for money for its own sake. Yeah, you know, there's the skin diving vacations, there's the custom shoes, there's a few things that he spends money on, but not like Hubbard. You know, Hubbard was right. all about the money, and yes, very much about the personal power. Um, but Miscavige is about inflicting wreckage on the staff and in, and controlling the membership, you know, yep. from a sense of personal contempt and arrogance. And it's not, the money is the is another vector of control. It's not agree about completely. what the numbers are. And so as long as he continues to have this organization that feeds his needs for power over the staff in these two locations and control, he'll let the rest of it wither. And just as Hubbard did, Hubbard had no succession plan in place. You know, he was in failing health for years and yet never made a move to actually succeed. That's the narcissism of cult leadership, that he will, Miscavige will go the same way. He will not have any succession plan in place. He won't care what happens exactly. to the organization after he dies. They'll carry him out exactly. in a box, and who knows what will happen. You know, it's it's the case. there might it, it might be another battle where the guy that wins the succession fight comes out of an unexpected quarter, right? Nobody saw Miscavige coming except Miscavige. Pat and Andy right. Broker got got steamrolled, and they never even knew what hit him. That's right. And none, of the, none of the other guys that— you know, expected it at all, and and so a similar thing could happen. Or, you know, I, I think. By the way, we're kind of diverting here, but it might be fun to wrap up with this to say, okay, yeah. um, it looks like. So so I've been spending a lot of time on this Nexium cult lately. This bunch up in upstate New York. The guy um, that got arrested. See my blog for or our blog for for the stories I've done about Nexium. And there are some interesting parallels to Scientology. He does use some terminology from Dianetics, but I don't think he was ever, quote, in Scientology. But basically, that organization's imploding because I don't think it had a critical mass of staff and organizational structure to keep members in the face of the, the founders' arrest on criminal charges. I think that Scientology has enough organizational mass that... Even without a groomed successor to miscavige, it will persist in some form. It yes. will take it will be like North Korea, right? You had you know um, Kim Il-sung, you know the mighty leader who was pretty good. Then you had his odd-looking and inept son. and then now you have his clownish fool of a grandson running the place. So the quality of leadership in North Korea has gone down a bit over the last 70 years, but they're still bumbling and fumbling along
0: that's right the same thing i i my i've i've sort of predicted um if i had to put my money on anything i've put i would put it on a jw model where maybe a council of people take over rather than one guy steps up and i could be totally wrong about that but i just i just see that the parallels between the development of the jehovah's witnesses and scientology are so interesting and um and, and that would be the next logical step in that progression is that maybe a bunch of, you know, withered old guys take over. And it becomes, as uh, my friend Lloyd Evans, ex-JW activist, has said, uh, it becomes the survival of the dumbest in keeping yeah, I, the thing going.
1: I, I think Scientology's culture is antithetical to that. I think the JW culture, you know, it, it turns out that the governing body um, at the Jehovah's Witnesses was very low key until about 30 years ago and then they turned into what they are today which is you know claiming you know direct divine inspiration which they never really claimed before and taking on more and more direct oversight of the organization and more and more direct attempts to control the behavior of individuals in the church with you know preaching to them more than ever before Um, but i really don't think scientology is set up for a a group command structure their need, you know, culturally, I just don't think it's going to work. And I mean, on
0: paper, they are. So we'll see. Yeah, you know, but we'll see but how it goes. The,
1: but the whole paper structure that Larry slash Denise Brennan put together 30 years ago was immediately ignored. Anyway. Old,
0: but, and, but we can't ignore, um, and, and we don't have to get a big debate about this right this second, but we can't ignore the influence of Miscavige on that. Yeah, he it, shredded it, what was it, it left. It looks like it worked. It kind of worked for a little while, but he kept cutting it off at the knees because of his because of his dictatorial nature.
1: Yeah, and the thing is that anybody that's in Scientology that's in a position to grab power has grown up in that culture and that's how yeah. they're going to react to it. So, yeah. but but for sure. the thing is the thing is the orgs. So to back up to how that relates to the ideal orgs, so the ideal orgs are doomed. Scientology is not an expansion mode. The ideal org strategy is going to run its course, and every hand that they have to play from here out is worse than the ideal org strategy. Yes. And That's right. it will That's just right. continue to fade and this is eventually going to keep
0: consuming itself.
1: It will keep you consuming know. itself. It's already, as as I've said before, the ideal org strategy really proves this that Scientology's already passed the event horizon they're not able to flip over somehow and get back into growth mode. They're already past the point of no return. They're still able to harm the individuals and the families of those still in. But as far as being able to grow and be a larger danger to the culture as a whole, not so much. There are other groups out there that are effectively harnessing social media Right. And so so here you have Scientology building, you know, the, the ideal work strategy was what they did instead of social media. It's what right. they did instead of delivering service over the Internet. Right. Now you have all of these uh, new age, young social media, hip um, cult entrepreneurs like Teal Swan, Bettino Masaro, and a few others that are all about Facebook and YouTube to recruit. They deliver videos that you subscribe to, and if you dig those, then they bring you in for events, and that's when they've got you hooked. But All it's right. a very, very much more, um, it's a low-cost marketing model to get people hooked in. It won't be as big as Scientology. It's not as complex organizationally, but it's sure profitable piece of business. It'll only get so high. It won't get to the size of Scientology, but it'll move on. And that's the way that new cults are going to go. Old groups like TM, the Moonies, Scientology, and others are stuck in the past. Ideal Org is stuck in the past. Big fancy buildings are not what millennials are going to go for. Scientology Media Productions and Scientology TV are coming along, trying to harness social media, and they're doing it too late and too ineptly and too badly to be effective. So So the Ideal Org is really a watershed in proving that Scientology's past the point of no return. Um, Scientology TV will not undo that.
0: Exactly. Well, John, thank you very much for your insights on all of this and I I, I think it's great and I think your uh, I think your summation there was wonderful and spot on. People have um, grown very cynical in the ex Scientology community about people, Preaching the end of Scientology, and we're not saying that this is all going to happen in the next year. I don't think that's what you're saying. I mean, they've got they've got assets, they've got buildings, they've got people. You know, this is going to keep going for a while.
1: Well, but I think
0: you're absolutely right in terms of if you were to graph this trajectory, that that is exactly what's going on as we are looking at this. And I've the way I've simplified it is you know Scientology's dead, and they just don't know it yet, and that's. You know, that's basically what an effect you're saying.
1: Um, you know, there's two there's two examples to show what happens. Scient, you know, I agree with you completely. Scientology does not implode and disappear and shutter the doors. Right. The decline of Scientology is gonna be very different. Well, three examples. First, Christian Science. Christian Science Church, the, they have closed half the churches in the U.S. Membership is down by 60% in the last 40 or 50 years. The number of Christian Science practitioners that do that healthy, the healing stuff, is down by 80%. Membership is down more than half. Wow. And they are closed, they are shedding facilities, but they're continuing for a very long time. Yeah. Um, in business, there's an example of kind of walking dead. So 75 or 80 years ago, U.S. Steel was the most powerful company in the American economy. They were the largest supplier of the most critical material needed to run the economy. So even before World War II, where it was, a a national asset it was still if you wanted to make something you had to deal with u.s steel and they could decide how much of their production they were going to allocate to you it was it was you know a staggeringly important part of the economy they had unchecked power today u.s steel still exists but who cares it's still making steel but nobody cares they are not a force in the industry. It's all the Indians and the Japanese and the Koreans making steel that count. Mm. The, the, the third example is um, in terms of cults. And this is one that uh, Dr. Stephen Kent, who's that noted scholar in religion, turned me on to in an email a while ago. There was a group in England called the Muggletonians. And it was named after a guy named Muggleton. It has nothing to do with Harry Potter. Harry
0: Potter, <laughs>
1: okay. right? But the Muggletonians were founded in the 1650s or thereabouts. And I forget what their theory, you know, is a Christian sort of weird Christian offshoot. And the Muggletonians were basically laughed out of town within about 20 or 25 years. So by 1675 or thereabouts, they were done. On the other hand... The last Muggletonian died in 1975. Right. 300 years after the Muggletonian's brief moment of relevance. Right. So, just Yeah, trying to
0: kill an idea. I mean, ideas are bulletproof. You know, they just go and go and go. And there are millions of printed books of L. Ron Hubbard's works. uh, You know, and his lectures on the CDs. They're in libraries. They're around. I mean, the idea of... Killing Scientology utterly is a fantasy.
1: Well, uh, you know, you know, it will it will it will live. It will continue to drift downwards and be irrelevant unless some unforeseeable quantum event happens that causes right. it to blow up. That's and right. I argue that that event is of necessity unforeseeable. Yeah. We've You know, we could have said, it was a pretty good bet in 1977, that most of the senior management went to jail for Operation Snow White. It would have been a very reasonable bet to say, these guys are toast, they'll be out of business in three years. And yet their membership didn't peak until 15 years later. So, you know, we we do wanna be careful about predicting the end of Scientology. But I think the ideal org strategy is a really nice barometer that says these guys are past the event horizon. Absolutely, still dangerous and capable of inflicting tremendous damage on the people around it, but not on the society as a whole. Doesn't mean we shouldn't keep doing the work we're doing. It just means that we need to have confidence that, you know, that there's nothing they can do to get out of the ba- the box that they're in.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because our role as as critics and commentators is important. I mean, what we do is 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 very contributive to. Uh, you know, what set the stage for the documentaries and for Leah's show and for these various things that really have put the sort of the stake in the heart of the thing. But it's got it. You, you got to keep going. You got to finish the job. So and, all right. Uh, so we have gone way over here. But, John, I really, again, appreciate your time and attention on this. I think you've given some very, very good insight into what uh, this whole Ideal Org thing is about and how it was <laughs> about as unideal as, as you could imagine. And uh, and so so thank you. And we have some future episodes we'll be doing uh, that we've already planned out. So look for those, folks. Any um, questions, comments, feedback, good, bad, or sideways? Go ahead and leave them in the comments section here on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. As I mentioned earlier, I put a, I will post a link here to um, the uh, Reasoned Life p- uh, blog, which is uh, what John P writes for, and uh, and. That's our show for this week, so (laughs) bye-bye, folks.
1: See you guys.